Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out First United Methodist Sweetwater's website and social media. Now, here is Pastor Ryan Strebeck. So in my mom and dad's house, uh, which they built uh, when I was a baby, so a little over 40 years ago, uh, they built into their utility room a sewing room. It really turned into a storage closet, but like most of our, pro- like my workbench or anything else, right? So uh, that was the project room, but it was built in. I mean, it was part of the intention of the house was to have a place where things could be manufactured on a sewing machine or with a uh, needle and thread. And, uh, you know, we're fortunate that mom didn't have to make us clothes. We, you know, we weren't growing up during the Depression or a time where we just absolutely had to. Um, and she was too busy anyways, uh, keeping us in line. But she was only one generation removed from a time when my grandmothers did have to make clothes for their kids. And it was part of their daily home economy uh, to make clothes for all their kids that they could, either couldn't buy or couldn't afford to buy or couldn't find or whatever it was. And so it was just part of the regular economy. It occurs to me as a very humbling thing to have someone make clothes for you or to take a needle and thread and produce something that that helps keep you warm, helps keep you clothed, that gives you a sense of pride. Uh, When you you walk around, there's a great Emmylou Harris song about, uh, you know, my coat of many colors that my mama made for me uh, when we were poor. And uh, it it may have even been a Dolly Parton song. I should check that reference. Uh, You country music experts can let me know. Uh, But a great song and just a sense of pride when someone makes something for you, uh, you carry that with you. It's a form of grace, I think. And so we left our first parents last week, exiled from the Eden Garden and driven out into the wilderness. They were facing a very different world there than they faced when they were created in the Garden of Eden. And even though God has cast them out of paradise for choosing to listen to the tempter and choosing their own way over and against God's way, God does not leave them alone. They lose that immediate close intimate presence of God, but God does not abandon them altogether. God does not leave them alone. And just after we learn that Adam will return one day to the dust that he was created from, uh, he will one day die, that he now has a mortal body, God gets out his sewing needle, and he gets out some thread, and he makes clothes for this ashamed couple. Do you hear the grace in that little piece of the story? that God recognizes their new life, that they're ashamed, and so they've made these little loincloths for themselves, you know, and walking around in shame and fear, and and God, in the midst of their wilderness experience, makes clothes for them uh, out of skin that they can uh, enjoy and live in this new world that has thorns and thistles, and uh, it helps to have clothes. Grace. And this is where, you know, sometimes we hear this, this, misreading of scripture where we say, well, you know, I'm just more interested in the New Testament God than the Old Testament God. The Old Testament God is a God of judgment and the New Testament God is a God of grace. And clearly when you read the Old Testament and you see things like this, you realize, uh, okay, this is the same God, same grace. Uh, It comes to us differently. And of course, when you read the New Testament, you're going, well, there's a lot of judgment in the New Testament too. So uh, anyways, it's, it's all, we get it all. We get the same God in the pages of Genesis 4 that we get in Mark chapter 4 or Revelation chapter 4. Thanks be to God. This rescue plan has begun 
And uh, as quickly as we have fallen, God is at work bringing us home. To the garden that we've been exiled from, he's paving a way for us to come home someday. So Adam and Eve take up the work of multiplication that they were asked to do, and they have two sons, Cain and Abel. And while it is hard for us to imagine the Garden of Eden, we have no trouble understanding the world that we see in Genesis 4. The first family of God's people is torn apart by the same things that tear us apart today. Eve, you know, immediately she triumphs and she gives birth to these boys and she begets human beings. She said, I have made another human with God. You know, just as God was, man was created from the ground and God did that work, now I've participated in God's creation through the begetting of children and she just rejoices. And instead of working together, though, these boys, to make the home economy work, you know, you needed somebody to farm and you needed somebody to chase the sheep around and to go other places. Instead of making that work in the economy, one brother rises up and kills the other one. And so this story really helps us to make sense of the world that we see around us and the world that we find inside of us. We recognize God's providence and his willingness to meet us where we are. We worship God almost intuitively, but sometimes we do so indifferently or half-heartedly and so we lose our way only to find God is busy making a pathway for us to come home sometimes we come home and we choose God and we live while other times we turn away from God and we follow our ancestor Cain our brother Abel his blood cries out from the ground and we cannot deny any of us our need for rescue, our need for pardon. And as we wrestle between my way and God's way, Genesis 3 and 4 remind us of our major relationship problems, particularly immediately between men and women. We see it, right? And we see it between parents and their children. And we see it from one sibling to another. This is a world that we know. And so this story helps us ask at least a couple of questions and gives us a couple of answers. Pressing questions like, was it always this way? I mean, this world that we find ourselves in, was it always this way? And must it always be this way? If it is this way now, does it always have to be like this? The first question is answered earlier in the story as the Bible affirms a hearty no, it wasn't always this way. We read Genesis 1 and 2. We join Adam and Eve carrying on our inside, the inside of our beautifully created souls. We now have a bent or an inclination to turn away from God, to miss the target that we were created for in our attempts to live without God. And that's where we find ourselves in this new concept the Bible introduces to us here called sin. We have an inclination to turn away from God and to choose our own way. And as for the second question, does it have to be this way? Does it always have to be this way? We will turn and take a closer look at the story. So if you'd like to follow along uh, in your Bible there, or a pew Bible, uh, we're in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, and we're starting uh, where Jerry read for us earlier uh, in verse 1. And we read about the brothers, and they were created. Uh, we read, and even in the name Abel, it's very interesting. In the Hebrew understanding of this name, it means a mist or a vapor. 
And so you can see in the foreshadowing and the storytelling that, you know, even we begin to see that Abel's life did not last that long. And here we have, uh, even in his name, we see an understanding of that. Uh, now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. And, you know, again, it's a, it's a very sub, very much a subplot, but have we not seen this throughout history that the herdsmen and the farmers are always at war with each other, right? You see it in the early settling of America, the same, and it's just easy to blame all the problems in the world on the farmers. If you're a free-range rancher, it's like everything wrong with the world is about farmers. See, just read the story of Cain and Abel. If we'd just been left to all, you know, follow sheep and cattle around, we'd be fine. And uh, they're always that fighting. Uh, it is a subplot, but it's there. And we see it and this tension between different economies and how we struggle to live together. I'm thinking my work is uh, more important and different than your work. And so in verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Worship. You can imagine that being the children of the parents that we read about in the garden, that worship was important. Remember, God used to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, right? And there's this understanding that they were relating to God. And so it makes sense that Cain and Abel, immediately from the beginning, were interested in worship. They connected their Monday through Saturday work with their Sunday resting, or in that case, it was their Saturday resting. But anyway, there's six days of work and their one day of rest. And so they present in due time an offering to the Lord from the work of their hands. Uh, we have uh, Cain who offers uh, some of the produce from his field. And then we have Abel who offers this firstborn with the fatty contents, this really nice offering. We naturally ask the question uh, as we read in the story that one offering was regarded by God and one was not regarded by God. And so we immediately go, well, what the heck was wrong with Cain's offering? I mean, he brought him something out of the field. Uh, and while the story doesn't spend a lot of time, I think, wanting us to know and to get bogged down in this detail, there is something we see in the intention of Cain and the intention of Abel. You can see a little bit in the grammar, a little bit of indifference on the part of Cain. Like, yeah, I'll bring some stuff that grew in my field. And you can see a little more intensely and planned out giving in the way that, that Abel gives. He gives the firstborn and he brings this sacrifice from something that really would have cost him something. And so, but we don't get a whole lot more of the why. And we don't, uh, we don't know how the brothers found out that God regarded one sacrifice and didn't regard the other, except there was some kind of communication that let them know, uh, I am pleased with one and I'm not pleased with the other. And so the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, or Cain, I like the word vexed. Cain was vexed. He was very mad, and his face fell, or his countenance fell. This is the only time in the whole Bible that we see this verb of a face falling like this. And it kind of means, it's like the turning away from God. And so he, he's, he's feeling dejected, he's mad, he's angry, and so immediately he pivots and he turns away from God. And this is not just an archaic story, right? I mean, as Jerry prayed for us earlier, and so these scriptures tell a story that we know, that we live in today. How many times have we heard people say and have we said ourselves, you know, I tried that God thing for a little while. 
I tried that worship thing for a little while and I brought my offering of myself and I brought my family and I gave sacrificially and I worked in the children's department and I cooked in the kitchen and I did all the stuff and God blessed that family over there that didn't ever do squat and didn't bless me, you know, and I had this bad thing happen to me and whatever. It's a natural thing to experience, right? We look at other people and we go, why are they blessed? Or we determine that they're blessed uh, more than me. And here I am giving. So, you know, we remember the flashes, the story that Jesus told the parable of the two brothers. It's an ongoing lifelong story. God blessed that guy and not me. So see you later, worship. I tried you once and I'm not trying you again. And sometimes that's where we find people, you know, when we ask people, you know, do you have a church home and we want to invite them to church or something? And they say, well, you know, I, I had a bad experience or this thing happened. And, and sometimes in listening to people, you know, you can help them rebuild those bridges and realize, okay, yeah, they realize later on, uh, gosh, that really wasn't about God, you know, not blessing me. It was just about, I missed the whole thing. I missed the picture. I missed it all together. And, and then sometimes they feel guilty and they, they don't want to try again. So it's a hard thing. Worship is a hard thing. It is a hard bit of work when we bring our lives before the living God. So, but thanks be to God, uh, when we miss it in our worship, you know, when we miss God and we stumble around and we make an error and, or we're indifferent or whatever happens and God for some reason doesn't regard our offering. This is where we jump back in the story. Uh, God doesn't just leave it alone. He doesn't just say, okay, well, that's that. That's, that's your, now your worship life is over. I'll just take Abel and we'll go have our own little two-person church. Uh, he says, he goes back to Cain. And it's, this, it's not a rebuke. If you read in the text, it's not a rebuke at all. It is, a, it is a fatherly parental invitation to consider where Cain is and to see how we can pave the way home. Listen to these words. The Lord said to Cain, why are you vexed and why has your face fallen? Right? Why, why did you turn around and walk away from me? I was engaging you here. I was giving you some counsel. And if you do well, will you not be accepted? Uh, it's translated more, uh, it's like if you do well, you will stand upright. You will, you will be able to stand on both feet and you'll feel good about where you are standing in the, in the midst of worship. And you can stand right beside your brother Abel and you can offer sacrifices together. If you do well, you will be upstanding. There is still time. We see so much grace in God's invitation and in God's uh, loving chastisement of Cain. You know, in the New Testament, we read in Hebrews that God disciplines those he loves. You know, when we're wandering off, uh, he turns us and so we'll walk in the right direction. You know, it's like you want your worship to be engaging and fulfilling and we want to offer appropriate sacrifices of ourselves. You know, Paul says we, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices and we need to know what that's like. So goodness gracious, if we're off beat, uh, we would want God to let us know uh, that that's the case. It would, be, it would be a bad thing. It would be a vindictive God to not set our feet on the right path when we had wandered. So God engages Cain, invites him, gives him an opportunity to respond, a second chance, if you will. And he says, but if you do not do well, then sin is crouching or even couching at the door. It's this image of a tent and at the door of that tent, there's this wild beast that is sitting down on its haunches and it's waiting for you. And its desire, its lust is contrary to yours and it wants to eat your lunch. Literally, that's, that's what sin wants to do here. So if you do not, you know, pursue this path, if you turn around and you walk away from God, that's what you're going to find, Cain, everywhere you go. 
Its desire is contrary to you, but you may rule over it, or you will be able to rule over it. This same counsel comes to us. Uh, If you do well, you walk back towards me, you lift your face, you look me in the face, God is saying, we can work this out, this is okay, I'll teach you. Uh, And and you can stand up straight and have pride in in where you stand, rather than pride in going your own way. And then, uh, but if you do not, then, you know, sin is just, it's going to be there. And uh, this, this word th- that we see about, you know, either uh, sin may, um, I mean, you shall rule over sin or you must rule over sin or you may rule over sin is a tricky word to translate. It's a strange Hebrew idiom. And as is often the case, it's really hard to understand that in English. Uh, in fact, it's so difficult and such a fascinating pursuit that John Steinbeck in his novel, his masterpiece novel, East of Eden, which was written in 1952, I think, but it's, it's set in uh, the Depression era, Dust Bowl era in Salinas, California, and he's, he's, he follows this story of these two brothers. I mean, it's clearly from this text, and it's a beautiful story. It's a long story. It's a difficult story, but it points us in the direction of this word right here. It finally settles on this little piece where he has uh, these, these people in the story that know each other, a couple of the protagonists, and they're wrestling with this very passage of Scripture. And this one guy says to the other, he says, you know, I'm just, I'm thinking about this thing that you read for me, you know, years ago, 10 years ago. And he says, I, 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 there's one thing that always hangs me up. There's this bit about, um, this bit that says you shall rule over sin. You know, sin's going to be in the doorway, it's going to be crouching at the door, and you shall rule over it. He said, it just doesn't seem to fit, you know, and I think about it. I mean, after all, I mean, Cain doesn't respond to that. Uh, he does, you say, it sounds like a promise, and Cain doesn't, it doesn't happen for Cain. It doesn't fully happen for his descendants. So what is the, why do we get hung up on that word? It sounds sort of like a predeterminism, you know. It, sin will be crouching at the door, but you shall rule over it. And so then we're just left to think, well, if somebody doesn't rule over it, you know, when we stumble and walk away, then God must have just intended all along that we just wouldn't be one of God's people, right? So we just kind of say, well, well, I guess God just didn't have it in his will that I would be his child, I would be his son. And so it kind of has this this determinism built into it. And then sometimes we translate it, um, sometimes we translate it, you must. You know, sin is crouching at the door, but you must uh, rise up and conquer it. And, he, and he's, he, they explore this, and they said, but you know, that sounds kind of like just this thing that we can preoccupy ourselves with, and we can constantly be thinking about the commandment. We must, we must, we must, we must, we must. And so finally, they go through this really neat part of the story where they go to this wisdom council, and they learn Hebrew, and they study it for years, and they get back together, and they say, okay, I think I've got it figured out. And it's there in King James-type language. So they say, instead of thou shalt or thou doest, doest thou, they say, we think it's better to say thou mayest, thou mayest. Timshel is the word. So this word Timshel becomes an important piece of the story, and I won't spoil that for you, but thou mayest, you will be able to, opens up a world that we don't see in the previous two ways of trying to translate this. And so again, it asks the question, we ask the question, will it always be this way? Does it have to be this way? And part of what I think this story is telling us is no, it doesn't always have to be this way. We aren't predetermined to respond a certain way, but there's something left for us to work through, to decide, to work with God, to form 
a better way forward. I'm just going to read, um, this is the, the advisor who was actually a servant in their house. And here's what he said. They're arguing about this. They're talking about it. And Adam says to this gentleman, Lee, he said, do you believe that, Lee? Do you really believe that? And here's what he said. He said, yes, I do. Yes, I do. It is easy out of laziness, out of weakness, to throw oneself into the lap of the deity, right? It's easy just to say, oh, I'm just going to throw myself at God and say, I couldn't help it. The way was set. Right? However things shook out in my life, I just couldn't help it. It's just the path that God predestined for me, and that was how it was going to be, and I didn't have any choice in the matter. And he says, but think of the glory of the choice. He said, that is what makes a man a man. Isn't that great? Think of the glory of the choice. Think of the glory that is before us when God invites us to respond to him, the glory of the choice. God is at work, and we are responding. Now, tragically, we know how this story ends for Cain. We know that after he hears this, he doesn't respond to God again uh, in this time. He instead gets his brother, and they go on a little camping trip. They go on a little excursion. They go out where no one else is there, and they go out into the field. And instead of Cain, it's a wordplay. Instead of Cain standing upright by responding to God, he rises up and kills his brother. That's what he chooses. That's the direction that he goes. And so, of course, God comes to Cain just like he went to Adam in the garden, you know, and and saying, hey, why are you hiding from me, Adam? And Adam's like, well, you know, what's going on? Uh, He responds to Cain and he says, where is Abel, your brother? And Cain just turns around and he just, you know, it's like you can imagine him yelling at God. He says, I don't know. That's your business. I take care of the farm. You take care of people. What do you think? I'm my brother's keeper. You know, is it my responsibility to take care of people now? I thought that was your job. And of course, he's angry and he's ashamed and he knows that things have gone south. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And so just as Adam and Eve were exiled, Cain gets his own version of exile. And he, God actually marks Cain so that no one will murder him. He has to stay alive, and we don't know what the mark was like, but he he's, goes on from there, and he has to live in this way, and he lives with this reality. So I want to finish today with uh, two, two conclusions. The first conclusion is how the story ends in Genesis, how the story ends in our Bible there at the beginning uh, in chapter 4. So the, the chapter starts, the story begins with Adam and Eve giving birth to these two sons, right? It's a beautiful moment. Eve triumphs. And in the middle of the story, the one brother rises up to kill the other brother. So imagine you're Eve. You've had these two beautiful sons, and now you only have one because of what's happened. And one of the things that the Bible does in the Old Testament in Genesis, the way that God tells the story, is every time the story starts... It, it ends with some reference to the beginning, and it ends with a little bit of a happy ending. It's not so much a silver lining, but, you know, I think our love and appreciation of a happy ending in a movie or a book, I think it comes from right here. I think it comes from God telling us stories and reminding us that we are his people and that we live in this story right here. So listen to how the story ends in the end of chapter 4. This is Genesis' little conclusion to the story. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and she named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another child instead of Abel, because Cain killed him. 
To Seth also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord again. That's how the story ends in Genesis. But we're still asking ourselves, but does it always have to be this way? And so I want to call your attention and imagination to the opening of Mark's gospel. When Jesus comes on the scene and things are happening and Jesus is baptized and all of a sudden we read this strange detail in Mark chapter 1. In verse 12, and the Spirit of God immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. Where did, we, where, where did Adam and Eve go? Where are Cain and Abel living? In the wilderness. So the Spirit immediately drives Jesus into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days. And this little detail that I never could understand why I was there. And he was with the wild beasts. Jesus is with the wild beasts. And so sin is crouching at your door like a wild beast. It's going to devour you if you turn in that direction. And Jesus goes into the wilderness to endure temptation, right, to overcome where Adam failed and to provide a way for us to walk. And Jesus is there. And who do we find? We find the wild beast crouching at the door. And this time, uh, our, our hero in the story doesn't fall. But Jesus stands upright. And he overcomes the temptation of the devil and it makes a pathway for us. That's why I love that the writer of Hebrews calls Jesus the pioneer of our faith. He's the one that walks before us. So not only do we follow Jesus in disposition, we, are hum- we humble ourselves and we, we hold on to the word of God when the devil tempts us and comes at us and tries to tell us that we're less than who we are or that we really can't get back on track or that our worship's inferior or whatever. And we speak the words that God has spoken to us. We have that disposition, but we also have the power that Jesus gives us through the cross and through his death and resurrection and his ascension where he sits at the right hand to make intercession for us. So in our struggle against sin, God has not left us alone. Christ is our pioneer. He's made a way for us to go forward and we follow him now. And that's the reason the story doesn't always have to be this way. That's why we don't always have to fall like Cain fell because Jesus made a way for us to stand upright through his grace and through his power. So may we follow Jesus when sin is crouching at the door and may we overcome the things that are thrown at us that we might live and that we might know God and that we might find joy there. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.